Anyway, I think it's interesting to talk about fandom, if only because it'll help people in publishing realize like what publishing is and what it's not. Hi there, I'm Emma Kiesling. And I'm Sydney Allen. And this is Uncovering Publishing, the UCL Publishing Podcast. Um, I'm so excited to introduce today's guest. Dr. Francesca Coppa is currently a professor of English and director of women's and gender studies at Muhlenberg College. She co-founded the Organization for Transformative Works, the company behind Archive Our Own, in 2007. She currently contributes to the Transformative Worlds and Cultures Journal and in communications for the OTW. She does background on fandom to journalists and podcasts like us. She's a published author of several books, most recently of the fan fiction reader Folktales for the Digital Age and Vidding a History, and we can get into all of that work and more a bit later in the podcast. Welcome, Dr. Kopa. Thanks so much for having me. Well, that was quite an intro, so we'll just dive right into uh, some of our icebreakers today. Our first one is, what is your favorite book to give as a gift? You know, I don't have... You know, I don't have what, in fact, I, these icebreaker questions are really hard uh, I don't <laughs> have a book to give as a gift. And part of it is what you want to do is pair the person with the right mm-hmm. book, uh, which in fact, actually, you know, like there's a, there's a fan fiction hookup there, which is that one of the great things about fandom is that people often like custom write the story, right? In publishing, I wouldn't custom write the book. Um, but you do custom choose the book. My son is 13. And so I spent a lot of time this year giving Sue Townsend's Adrian Mole, which is the story of, it's literally, I think the subtitle is like a, you know, a story of the uh, of 13 and a half. Um, and so to give a book about a 13 year old to a 13 year old that is witty, right? So I bought like five copies of that because I thought I have to go to all these 13 year old birthday parties. Um, <laughs> but with other people, you're trying to match the book to the person. And I think, um, you know, the, people sort of forget that like the kind of publishing can be really personal. Um, I think in fandom, we know it's really personal, uh, but gift giving can be really personal too. So I don't have like a book that I'm like pushing on people. I try to, you know, uh, love match. All right. Well, um, the second one, this one should be pretty quick. What is one book that you'd like to see on the screen? I'm terrible. So I don't feel that way either. I, I, I don't have a book that I'd like to see on the screen. Um, Nothing that you think you're like, this would make a great movie or series or something? No, because um, I'm trying to figure out how to explain why. It reminds me a little bit. I'm going to go back to the fan fiction example again, which is to say that the thing that I want is always the thing that I didn't think of. <laughs> which yeah. I always If I can think of it, I don't need it. Like, um, it's, it's an odd, this is literally what I feel about sort of other people. Like, other people are constantly bringing things to my attention. Like, that's what they're not that that sounds awful. That's what they're for. That's what you're actually <laughs> for is to bring interesting ideas to me. Uh, you didn't know that that's what you're for. Um, but it's, but I mean this quite sincerely. Yeah. Like, I, I don't really sit around like trying to kind of push out. I mean, you know, so in the same way that if you said, you know, what, what book would I want to get as a gift? Like, I don't know. Like, that's the whole point. <laughs> if I knew I would just buy it. Um, the book I, but, right. What I, I would just buy the book if, if I knew what it was. Um, what I want from other people is to bring, you know, my attention to things. Well, that actually leads us into our first question really well, um, which is very all encompassing, but what does fandom mean to you? Yeah. I mean, I think the first thing I would say in terms of what fandom means to me is that it's a people, 
It's a community experience. And that's more controversial than you would think. <laughs> um, that in ACA fandom, right, there are people who are definitely kind of arguing about what, what it is to be a fan and what it is to be in a fandom. And there are folks who, and part of it is that we don't have great, very precise language about some of this stuff. Um, where an individual person who likes an individual thing might say, I'm a fan of that thing. And of course they are. But when I say what is fandom, to me, it's that place where you move from a kind of isolated appreciation, no matter how strong, to some kind of collective participation uh, around the object. To the point that like, so for instance, like God knows lots of graduate school is essentially a fandom, <laughs> right? I mean, they may, not, they may not call it that, and I know they can get all up, up with themselves. But what I'm saying is, is, you know, you put a bunch of Moby Dick scholars in a room, it's a fandom. Yeah. <laughs> at a certain point, like, it's moving, the, the, it's got wank, it's got all this, it's got, you know, fights, it's got all of this stuff that you have in a kind of fanish experience of, you know, various big name fans and people, you know, who's, who's, who's reading is correct and, you know, so-and-so is stupid. It, it, it's essentially a, a recognizable experience of people coming together to argue, talk, make things, make new things, have discourse around a book. Right. That or perfectly book, fits our program. <laughs> well, I mean, a book or a TV show or whatever it is. But so um, this is a bit of an argument because there are other fan studies scholars who are really talking about, not to get too jargonistic, but the affective relationship, like that actually being a fan is really just about how intensely you feel. For me, fandom is that moment where you move into some kind of community. And it may not be that you're at the center of the community. Maybe you just know that there is one. Maybe you're a lurker. Uh, maybe you're just reading the journals. Maybe you're just a poor student who's on the outskirts watching professors argue about something you know you don't care about. But you're, you're kind of understanding that there's a world there. Um, and for me, that's very important because in general, I'm in favor of kind of participatory models of culture that are about you know, to me that, you know, one, one, yes, art can kind of validate you in a kind of individualistic way and does, but there is something about even that I tend to see as a kind of bringing you in, in bringing you into community with other people. I mean, sometimes you're in community with the dead, like that's, you know what I'm saying? John Ruskin would say you're in community with the dead. That like the minute you read something, you're in community with all the people who've ever read that thing, or you're talking like to Socrates, you know, you're, you're, you're letting Socrates teach you. And on some level, you're moving into some kind of relationship with somebody whose book stands in for them. Um, and that's, I get that too. But to me, it's a it, it's really kind of a community thing. Uh, and so, you know, organized fandom of the kind that I have um, participated in and helped helped to build and help to, to provide with an infrastructure is one kind of fandom. But in fact, lots of things are fandoms that they don't really call fandoms. Like I said, like I, I, I have to say, I like the mental image that groups like a bunch of Moby Dick scholars that do, they do a reading like up in like the Northeast every year where they just read the whole thing through and like, and like them connecting them to like Taylor Swift fans who are looking <laughs> through her lyrics, like looking for clues. And like these people are not so far away as as one might think is so funny. No, I mean, even as you say it, isn't it sort of obvious? Yeah, right? like it's like you know, like the meme. Where is the lie? Like it, it is. Um, yeah. it's very similar, except it's a high culture object versus a kind of low culture object. But in fact, the kind of analytical and creative and interpretive and community based and hierarchy status jockeying, yeah. all that, it's all the same. <laughs> in my opinion. Um, 
Well, okay, yeah, let's let's move on to talking about the organization for transformative works. Uh, the OTW is an all volunteer organization has been since its inception, but it does do some drives for donation and money yeah. is unfortunately still important um, yeah. for its running. Um, so we can get into like annual donations and how it runs. But later, my my first question is just if OTW had lots and lots more money, um, what would you ideally like do with it? And where would you see it going? I mean, this is a complicated question. And in fact, I've, I've been literally thinking about just this because I'm kind of debating going in there and trying to help them get lots and lots more money. Um, so, you know, you had called it a company in your intro. Uh, it's not really a company. Uh, somebody said it's an anarchist collective. That's a little more. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> um, in, a, in a way, it is an anarchist collective. I mean, you, and in fact, it's one of the reasons that people are constantly sort of misunderstanding it. Because it could not be whatever. It's the number seven. The Archive of Our Own is the number seven entertainment website in the world over Disney+. Plus. <laughs> just understand. I'm just saying. It's That's like, so satisfying. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> go and look it up. Like, I think it's like Netflix is above us, Netflix and Spotify, and then it's us, and then it's Disney Plus. And like, this is like a thing that like I built in my basement. Just have a moment um, with my friends. Like, obsessed. Over, like huh? I'm obsessed. So it's a little, believe me, I wake up a little bit like in terror all the time. So anyway, it's, <laughs> it's this enormous thing. And people, I think quite reasonably, though, to my like eternal Ajita, always sort of assume, well, you must be some kind of company. In fact, we came out sort of at the same time as Tumblr, which then sold, I mean, which ridiculously sold for $3 billion and is now worth, you know, $27.50, but is the best website, is the best commercial website on the web. Um, but what I'm saying is it's $3 billion. We were building this stuff at the same time and we were like, $3 billion. Anyway, um, <laughs> so... It it, 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 people look at it and they think it should work like companies that they understand. And they make all kinds of assumptions like A, that anybody's getting paid or that B, we have like mm -hmm. offices or like any of it. Like we really don't. It's an entirely online company where people who volunteer or have skills like come in and do work like because, <laughs> period. <laughs> Like, or because they want the thing to work, literally. That's, that's always been how it is. Um, and it came about, I mean, you know, the story has been sort of told, but it really came about in the mid aughts uh, where myself and a bunch of other people had been in fandom before the internet was commercialized. I mean, there was a moment, the internet used to be a thing that was hosted on like government and library primarily government university and library servers. That was the internet and the Department of Defense, but whatever. Um, but that was it. Like the, the people who were techie and had servers were university people, high, uh, you know, um, some, some, some lawyers, the, the government and librarians who were the backbone of all the secret masters of not just fandom, but the universe are librarians. <laughs> Give to your local library and be nice to your librarians, like for your own sake, really more than anything, because they have magical powers. Anyway. Those people were the internet. And so it was a non-commercial kind of an internet um, full of, you know, all of us assorted freaks. And there was a moment where you could really, we had been there longer and we could really see sort of venture capitalists kind of coming in and trying to figure out how to commodify stuff. And they're still, I mean, obviously still trying. And in fact, half of what's going on right now is like the end game there where like tech bros are like, wow, it turns out none of this is profitable. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> they were coming and trying to figure out how to monetize stuff. Um, and one of the things that they wanted to monetize was the kind of fandom infrastructure 
that in fact was like in some ways like the old growth forest of the internet, which is to say like Star Trek fans and Slash fans and, uh, and science fiction fans were some of the, because we like science, <laughs> I mean, it's like a little stupid, right? Because we like science and technology, duh, were some of the uh, earliest folks on the web. So some of the earliest, like, you know, when the, when the internet was two cans and a piece of string, they were doing all, you know, on the little string, they were doing all, all Star Trek creative on Newsnet and stuff like this. So we were there for a long time. And all of a sudden you could kind of see the venture capitalists being like, wow, there's all this great literary creativity and other kinds of creativity happening. Like, how do we charge for this? We yeah. had to figure out some way to profit off of this. Um, and we could see it happening. And also, I mean, this is more, this is really probably more than what you want, but but also, um, you know, part of it was that these kind of commercial, what we now call social media. Um, I have an article where I basically say like fandom was always social media to the extent to which it was about like using technology to be social. <laughs> um, but we owned it and built it. The new kinds of social media, the one, you know, or the ones that you all know, like are built by other people. And so they control like the ground on which you're standing. They can, you know, they own the room in which you're having the conversation. And as you will learn, if it hasn't happened to you already, like it turns out they could just be like, yeah, we're selling this room and, and opening a Denny's. And you're like, wait, but I live here. And they're like, we don't care. Yeah. So that recognition of like, and people were starting to be like, wow, these, these, these media, these, these companies are great. We should go have our conversations there, except we're not stupid. And like what happened is, especially in the early days of the startup, like you would go to a room and then the room would close down and you'd lose your network, you'd lose your art, you'd lose everything. So you're like, okay, you really don't want to do something like fandom in a place that's owned by other people. I mean, that was basically what it was. And so the cry about, we need to own the servers, meaning we need to own the ground that we're standing on, the place where the party is, <laughs> the place where the art is made we need to own this building i mean that's literally that space yeah that's literally what the whole thing was i mean it wasn't meant to be the number eight seven website in the world it was literally like can we own our own ground that we're standing on and well so that's and that support that you guys have for that ground that you've created i noticed um just annual donation wise I was so impressed because it seems that every year um, you request about 50,000 US dollars. Right. Um, and let me tell you, every time I sign on when that's there, the number, it just keeps going. Yeah, but so people are so the, passionate to support, it seems. So but here's the thing. In fact, I'm, I'm literally thinking about getting back. I mean, this is sort of off the record and the OTW is going to be like, she's planning what to what? <laughs> very, I mean, sorry. So sorry, OTW. I'm thinking about it. Um, you heard it first on the UCL Live podcast. Um, you know, we're in a really, if you ask me off the record, I'm not speaking as any OTW representative. I'm just speaking as somebody sort of knowledgeable. We're in a weird place between being a small website and being like the, the website I think we kind of need to be. Um, so, you, you know, you're saying this like, yeah, we're, we're, we're bursting those donations without even trying, but we're not, we, we haven't, <laughs> I, I, I gave an interview where I basically explained it this way. Like, we don't need a little more money. We need a lot more money. We need exponential more money to get to the next level, or we just need to kind of stay put. And I think, you know, at some point the org's going to have to make a decision about how to do that. But I think we're actually at some point going to need like lots more money. And the reason I say this is like, so we're super successful in that what we did is we built this software <laughs> with volunteers, each of whom you could not hire. Like you, you could not, I mean, it's millions and millions and millions of dollars of coding. It's like, so cool. it only makes me giddy. <laughs> Do you understand what I'm saying? The communications yeah. professionals who would also charge you, you know, thousands of dollars to do 
to, to do responsive communications, to have a, like a person like at the White House who's like, yes, I'm ready to respond. <sighs> we couldn't afford any of this. And you see, right. so as much as you think that this is like, wow, so much money on a drive, the answer is this is nothing. <laughs> $50,000, who are you hiring? First of all, you have to understand, even if you raised $50,000, that's not a salary. It may even say you yeah. have to pay payroll taxes. You have to pay health insurance. You, I mean, retirement plan. Like it's, it's not just like I asked my friend Martha to help me, which is what I did. I asked my friend, you know, <laughs> do you understand what I'm saying? So the money is in a really weird moment. If anybody's asking about like, what's the deal with, you know, well, how do you have so much money? The money is basically going to the, literally the servers. We bought the machines, we house them, we hire, oh you know, I mean, so that nobody else can take them. Like we have them. <laughs> it's like, I have it. Um, <laughs> The servers exist in a place that belongs to us that are housed there. We have backups and redundancies. And, and now that I think this, they just said uh, it's 11 million works. Um, and um, we're, I mean, knock on wood, we're rarely down. I mean, to give us some credit, we, we built it to be scalable in terms of being able to handle the amount of works. We built it. Um, the design is as, I mean, the fact that it works, sorry, can we just say when we started building this, there was no iPhone. Yeah, that's no, that crazy. Is, the fact that it's no been robust iPhone. enough to, yeah. The fact that it works on mobile is entirely <laughs> to the credit of the original designers who said this code has to be clean. And we didn't build it to be clean because of the iPhone. We built it to be clean because a lot of fans have disabilities. And we knew, and, and they're our friends. We didn't do it. That's another thing. We didn't do it to be like a disability advocate. We were doing it because like Jane wants to read. Jane's blind. Susan, right. we love Susan. Susan has fibromyalgia. You know, Dorothy is in bed all day. So these are a lot of the people who were in online fandom, right? I mean, if you're right. in chronic pain in your home, yeah. you're on the internet and you're hanging out with me, okay? And so we know these people. We like these people. So it's like, okay, how do we get the archive to work for Jane and Dorothy and Martha? Like it wasn't abstract, Right. Yeah. All this to say to go back to the issue of money. <laughs> I don't know if this is the this is not really a publishing question, but the issue is like so. In terms of buying those boxes, we're good. We have enough money that we can buy servers. Probably what we're going to need to buy at some point is people. Like people are going to get tired. <laughs> and I mean, a lot of people have been there being heroic for years and years and years. But at some point, we're probably not just going to need people, but we're probably going to need a lot of people, which means that like, as I'm thinking about it, I mean, either yeah. at some point, we just hope we just decide we're not going to grow much more and try to keep it small. Um, or maybe we have to like raise a ton of money and actually hire like a lot, like, you know, a team of coders. And, you know, I mean, these are each of them six figures out. Like you don't get like a coder. Yeah. I mean, right. these guys, everybody, everybody involved bills by the hour. So what I'm saying is whatever number you think is big, and that's why people who actually know anything about nonprofits, like mm -hmm. God bless them, they always come. And I don't, I mostly don't say these things on the Tumblr because I just get agita. But other people are like, hey, I work at a nonprofit. This is a ridiculous budget. Like you're, you're running this on what, 200,000 a year? I mean, we did a good job. It looks like a super professional website. The whole thing is a fan work. All right. So I think we've got, We've got lots on the money stuff. Um, so I'm going to launch into a, a bit of a long question. I read a bit of your book on fan fiction, and it brings up all of this interesting theory about um, 
fan fiction. So not only is OTW not for profit, but fan fiction writers don't get compensated with money for the stories they write. Um, And you've said before that, you know, fan fiction is what happened to folk culture, speaking to the fact that storytelling as a whole has been co-opted by not people, production companies, movie studios, Netflix, all of those people. Um, And that like, instead, it's, it it has this quasi protected bubble outside of uh, IP. And the work that writers produce is often articulated as a gift. So sort of going back to that first question that we had. um, And a lot of fans, I think, understand this immediately, as well as the positive things that come back to the gift giver or like the writer, like they get community and recognition and fun. But one of the most common critiques of uh, fan fiction is that the idea that it keeps women poor Mm -hmm. Uh, The idea being that there's a huge market there, like E.L. James taught us, right, with Fifty Shades, that um, this market isn't being exploited because all of these people are just writing what they want with their community in this pocket outside of everything else. So my my question is is really simple, and (laughs) I don't want you to take it the wrong way. Um, but the question is almost, does fan fiction, does it keep women poor and is the community enough? And and sort of how do you think about those different things? Yeah, no, I, I'd love to talk about that. Um, I No, I don't think that fan fiction keeps women poor. I think fan fiction is hugely, and I'll just make it as a pun, but enriching. But that's not <laughs> what the question is. Um, I do think that people are a little bit confused about, about the mass media, right? So there is money to be made in writing, but the money is inversely um, proportional to how much control you have, how personal the story is. Um, And that's just, I mean, this is like basic, like, you know, intro to communications 101, right? If it's a mass media, it needs to appeal to a mass audience. And that's where the money is made. Because not to be whatever, in the same way that I said that like Moby Dick Scholars was a fandom, Frankly, a lot of literary fan, literary book publishing is also a fandom. It's a fandom where some money is made, but there's a reason why like some of the creative writers who win the biggest literary prizes are employed by universities. And it's because they would like to eat. Right. Literary publishing is, I mean, a, a, the person who might win the Nobel Prize in poetry, and I don't mean Bob Dylan, I mean, somebody who's not Bob Dylan might have a print run of 500 copies on a book. Right, it's famously hard for authors to make any money at all, you know. What I'm saying is that there's a a little bit of a disconnect about this. Now, one of the ways that I personally think like fandom is amazing and profitable in the sense that you develop skills, video editing skills, writing skills, fiction writing skills, editing skills, um, reviewing skills, frankly, the number, I mean, web design skills, bu- building an entertainment media website in your backyard. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't anticipate. You can build skills that you can, and and you know what, ladies, should transfer into the marketplace. I am 100%. The number of bidders who end up being like, wait, like, wait a minute, I am the person who can redesign my company's website. I am the person who can make that video. Oh, you needed somebody to make the ad for the, you know, the splash video that goes on our front page. Like, I can do that. Um, I can write for you. I can do right. those skills, a million percent transferable. Um, and I think in fact, fandom is one of the best schools people will, by the way, published writers will tell you one of the best writing schools in the country, one of the best and most communal skill with female skill development community in the world, supportive, 
and and you know excited and engaging and free <laughs> okay that part of it dudes ladies go and make the money when you're talking about like the simplistic thing of like well you won't let me like you won't let me charge for my like dreary octopus story <laughs> what i want to tell you is like okay that's not the, that's not going to be a huge um money winner but i think that if you do then want to write in a money making way you can and you should and people have and do and i can i was going to say I, um you co-founded with I, Naomi Novik who is and my best friend right. Naomi is my yeah. best friend um the writer yeah. Claudia Gray you know comes out of fandom the you know the, the number you know uh, uh, there's just like so many um different writers who who got their start in or Martha Wells right I mean just people who are in in fandom and are winning Hugos and are Sandra published Claire, writers famously yeah yeah sure but what I'm saying is, is it's not just that you go and you, you, you and in fact <laughs> most of them are still writing fic why because it's a different pleasure because there's the story that you write that can be exactly the way you want and there's the story that you can write that can get past your editor her editor the head of the, the head of random house right. seven copy editors and, and and I have a broad enough appeal that it sells worth a damn. And they're not the same. The one might prepare you to do the other if that's work you want to do. And I right. think from a publishing podcast, I think it's just worth reiterating that this is not really mean. Uh, and I don't mean it to sound mean, but <laughs> writing for money is not necessarily art the way that art is. Now, and that's not a that's not saying that that one is good and one is bad because there is bad art. There's lot facts, God knows. I mean, there's <laughs> lots of this terrible art. Like the fact that it's art doesn't mean that it's good. It just means that like it's expressive and you had a lot of control. And it doesn't mean that a mass market story that, you know, I mean, I just saw Note. Man, it's a brilliant movie, right? I have, I don't know why it took me so long to see, you know, I think Jordan Pease an auteur, right? I mean, there's a sort of way, but on some, there's good art, there's good mass media art. But it is, I mean, sorry, there's good mass media, but it's not art to the extent to which it becomes, a. it's an industry, it's industrial, and it, it probably has to be industrial. It's not just about you, it's about, you know, all, all of the stakeholders and all the pieces of the company that get the story from your head into a bookstore and into somebody's hands, right? And you don't want to be naive about that. And it doesn't have to be bad, right? And you can have more power and less power and this, that, and the other thing. But I think a lot of people are really surprised you know, an editor can come back to you and say like, okay, this is really great, but you know what? Like we've done a bunch of, I don't know, zombie movies this year. Can you take that out and put in a mafia subplot? And you have to be like, yeah. A lot of our course mates found out we were interviewing you today and we're very excited. One had a question in particular as it ties into her dissertation. Okay. Um, and it touches on what you said, where there's a lot of these really well-known authors who started out and continue to do fan fiction, right. um, but now have made it huge in the publishing world. Um, so we were kind of wondering from a publishing standpoint and maybe in talent acquisitions, could you shed any light on the pipeline of a fan fiction author to a published author and how that might work? Um, I mean, pipe, I don't know that there's a pipeline. Um, <laughs> pipeline is overstating what there is. I mean, <laughs> I will say the number one thing that stops people from becoming published writers is they don't have anything to sell. <laughs> they haven't, they have literally nothing. Um, hot tip, actually having any manuscript whatsoever, <laughs> right? And I say this because the number of people, like, it's like they want to write and you say, well, so show me. And the answer is like, I have nothing. 
but actually just having a manuscript would be my first step. The second piece that I think people don't understand, um, at least in terms of publishing that makes money, is so, so great, you have that book. Nobody really wants one book hmm. because, and now I'm really speaking with my professor, my literary marketplace hat on, right? So great, you have a book and it's an amazing book and we publish your book and what and and we go through the work of publicizing you and everybody's like, oh my God, I want Emma's new book. It's amazing. And then the question is, so what's next? What else can I buy? If the answer is nothing, nobody wants to hear from you. This is an interesting topic when we talk about agenting as well, mm -hmm. because like when agents want to take on an author, they want to have that author for that author's entire life and have a more steady income stream that they can just be like, okay, go up and write your like one, one novel a year or every two years or whatever. And they really love that steady like income hot stream. Tip, have you really, if you want to do it, have more than one thing to sell. Yeah. <laughs> and I and in fact, increasingly from what I know, um, people really won't take you on like not in a money like again you know, there's all there's a million different smaller versions of this but if you're asking me like how might you actually become a writer and make money um incre like increasingly like like people, i mean go back to naomi i mean naomi had the first three books in the can before the first book came out um and that wasn't just her, like because if they're going to launch something you don't want to be like and what's next and at the like i said it, it, nobody's going to wait around for you to write that next book because it's an industry. People are trying Which to makes, make money. <laughs> this makes so much sense too, because I'm about to go on a complete like self-indulgent sidebar, Ew. but my sci-fi book club is currently, I've got gotten them to read Temeraire and I've had to explain to all of them that like, you got to keep reading past the first one. Cause there's so much going on in like the world and the like overall vision for where the series goes. <laughs> not i'm just right. i'm such a fan so yeah no no i mean Absolutely. they're amazing but what i'm saying and then in fact you know they wanted more and i forget how yeah i should remember the i think nine, there's six i mean there's they, five or, i think there's nine. There nine there's nine <laughs> now eight okay or nine i mean i have to double yeah. check i apologize naomi for not remembering i think it's not <laughs> and by the way this also I, i'm always telling my students this because in fact you know talk about not taking advantage of your tools like this is why if you have web content i mean you must know this is you know you got to come up with something every week like it doesn't matter if it's awesome yeah. what you want to do is train an audience to come back for the thing so it's got to be that every friday or the first of the month like people know that the next one is coming and if there is no next one you're just chasing the tide in terms of and, and now i'm talking about industry i'm not talking about art i really want to be really clear i'm talking about how to eat i'm not talking about what would make the best book Right. That actually, I've got an interesting yeah. bit on that and not creating the best book. It kind of ties back to your academic journal, The Transformative Works and Cultures, mm -hmm. uh, which deals with a lot of topics pertaining to the fan community. You most recently did a special issue on AI and fandom. Yeah. Uh, how do you feel about AI platforms like ChatGPT and how it might be used in the fandom community and kind of if it's done in an effort to maybe get product or manuscripts out faster, like you're saying, or blog posts? Uh Right. I mean, those are different things. I don't know what a, I mean, I'm sure AI is going to be good for something. Um, I don't know what it's good for yet. It's in, in, a, in a certain way antithetical to fandom mm -hmm. in the way that if fandom is about personalizing everything, <laughs> this is, I mean, uh, I forget who it was. I, I should remember her name, but there's a, a AI scientist who says we shouldn't call it AI. We should call it salami because then it'd be really clear. Like, does this salami have a brain? Is this salami thinking and talking? It'd be like, no, like it's, it's just, I mean, AI is a predictive text generator. And so 
it predicts, it comes up with sentences that seem plausible. And in fact, what fandom wants to do is come up with a thing that is implausible. We are an implausibility generator. Um, we are, I mean, I think at our best, a crack fic generator, right? I mean, <laughs> at least to me, I come here to get the thing that that is not predicted <laughs> by- The most like, random right, shit. Take and... it as crazy as possible. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, right, like call me Ishmael and he's a vampire, like great. Yeah. Like, <laughs> like I, I feel like, okay, so, um, to the extent to which fandom is about the unpredictable, the in the, the 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 whatever the implausible made plausible about personalization, right? About customization, about moving against the kind of mass media ness of text. AI is exactly the opposite. Um, it doesn't give you any community. There's nobody to commune with. It doesn't have a perspective. It's just predicting based on what it's read before, which is the complete opposite of some brilliant fangirl in Australia giving me like a fan and read on a show that blows my mind, right? It, it, mm -hmm. It's not clever and it's not creative. When it, what you're talking about, about doing blog posts, like I'm a little worried if it's just then a content generator. I mean, maybe it's a pipeline, but it's gonna be like a, like, I hate to say like a pipeline of poop, but like, who cares? Yeah. Like it's if it's gonna, I don't hear, know. Yeah, it's comforting to hear somebody very anti-AI in the publishing field, because I feel like a lot of the, the conferences we've been going to have been talking about how eventually we're, it's just inevitable. But in the world of, of publishing and fandom, that just sounds crazy. I mean, all, I mean, I, I talk a lot about like audio and stuff and they're talking about having like generating the voices to read audiobooks and stuff. But mm. a lot of people, people who, who work in those industries every day and produce those things. So like authors and publishers and then audiobook producers, most of them that I've met are still like, there's just no way it's going to be the same as what people are creating. And it, yeah. and it, you know, in, in their minds, like can never get there. Well, I, don't you know, know. I don't know. But see, it, I'll tell you, it's, it's, it's more frightening in publishing than it is. It depends on what you mean by publishing, right? Like, so I mean, publishing, right. <laughs> but the, the creation of words, right. So no, um, like, you know what I was thinking, like, so I, I, as a, as a, as an academic and as a fan fiction writer, I am occasionally asked if I want to do something like a novelization or mm -hmm. like some, you know, I mean, a lot of publishing is this kind of ghost written or work for hire. Um, and this, even there, there are varying levels of creativity, right? There are places where a person who is writing in a pre-existing IP, often with directions, like the thing is like, this is what I was gonna say, like they give you a Bible, like you, you have the color within the lines they give you. Um, but but obviously some people get more lot bigger spaces to work in than others. And then some people, and I have to say, I, I do know people who write in the, in the same way like comic book writers too, like who really manage to actually create something like really fresh within the confines of that, right? But when I think about something like, well, I'm gonna, I don't know, do I do I mention a particular IPs? Something like, let's say Nancy Drew books. Right. I sort of think, ooh, I think, I don't know. I wish it were not so, but I bet you an AI could probably could write totally a Nancy Drew book. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I, I, all it does is make me not want to make my kid read Nancy Drew because already, frankly, I mean, I say as an English professor, I mean, I just, thank God he's now reading real books. So he's reading The Great Gatsby. And I'm like, yes, excellent. We're reading books. Um, a lot of the stuff aimed at children and, and middle schoolers, which is a huge industry, I mean, publishing hat again. Right. Books for kids is really profitable because parents buy them and there's still this, I mean, you know, in particularly you know, parents with disposable income buy books for kids. But I'll tell you, a lot of these books and these series books, I mean, literarily, 
they're <laughs> I'm making a face for the I remember growing up my mom would like find because they they used to read to us and some of the things she would find would just make her so frustrated <laughs> and if she... you have any ear I just told you I like stylized well-written prose yeah. I mean a lot of this stuff is just kind of the prose is garbage you know um now you've got all right. the celebrities doing the children's book too, which isn't helping. Well, at least world. maybe that's a perspective, you know? I mean, in fact, not like, I don't mean, in fact, actually I take that. It's not really uh, the picture books. In fact, often are kind of little works of art. I mean, there's a re, you know, I mean, you know, not just Morris Sendak, but like some of the books aimed at really small children are really creative. And I don't think an AI could generate them, to be honest. No. I don't think they're clever enough. I don't think an AI is ever going to be smart enough to 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 write a because a, a children's book to have a Dr. Seuss or a Sendak that's that's art. I'm talking about all that kind of grade school, middle school serialized mm-hmm. shit that's at Barnes and Noble. Pardon my French. Anyway, the point of it is, I think if you if you fed the prefab stuff, which is already prefab, right? Yeah. Um, it is already made by somebody who's basically typing. And, and again, I and I don't want that person put out of work, but that's a, that's a different issue. Right? So there's the the labor issue of AI. Uh, which is to say that I think, you know, people who write terrible Nancy Drew books, like, <laughs> deserve to eat. But what I'm saying is, is I don't think it would necessarily produce a bad Nancy Drew book, but it's not going to come up with the next Nancy Drew book. Um, right. Publishing totally not hire all those work, art, you know, all those writers for hire. And instead, and like all the, I mean, this will remain nameless, but I was approached to write like Synergy right? Publishing hat, right? So this isn't an art, this is a product. And so if there's a popular like TV show or movie or something like that, they're going to want the synergistic, like they'll put out the yeah. books to coincide with it. And if they do well, they'll want to have a series and they'll want to aim them at kids. Cause if a person buys one, they'll buy all 18. I'm just going to make it up. Like, you know, little princess pirate mysteries that go with the little princess pirate show. And like that shit can be almost entire, you know what I mean? Like at that yeah. point, like the, those kinds of synergistic publishing schemes, I think are going to be AI and I don't know how you stop it. All right. So, so anyway. we, we uh, semi, I'm trying to find a segue here. So I'm going to take Dr. Seuss and run with it. And cause I want to get in a little bit of stuff about copyright and, um, and legal, mm-hmm. uh, because you've been involved in some pretty high profile cases. I, I'm pr- correct me if I'm wrong, if you were involved, involved in the uh, case brought by the Dr. Seuss estate mm-hmm. against yeah. other places you'll boldly yeah. go. Yeah. Um, uh, the, the, that case was settled before going to the Supreme Court. Um, and it's my understanding that it could have. Uh, so sort of broadening it generally, um, where do you see copy, copyright law going in the future when we've just had a case that was sort of you know, it, it was sort of on the road to get there. Um, and so like, where do you think it's going to go? And then where would you like it to go? Assuming those two things are quite, yeah. quite different. Um, you know, it's, I mean, obviously it's really complicated. Um, I, I, I'm going to start controversially the other direction saying as somebody who cares about artists and writing, like I'm totally pro copyright. I think people sort of assume because of my advocacy work that I'm not, um, I am, I mean, uh, copyright, I think copyright's too long. I, I mean, I will say, I mean, I'm not alone in that. Um, you know, the 10 second version of this is Disney really was responsible for pushing. I mean, it was originally 14 years, uh, it was 14 years and then it was the life of the author. And now it's however many years past the life of the author. Um, and that's just too long. So I am in favor. I think copyright should be shorter and um, 
if you never saw Richard Nash's, Richard Nash has a talk on the long tail and on publishing. Um, and, you know, really most things are, uh, the whole, you know, the idea of the long tail, right? I mean, uh, so most things sell a lot in the first, whatever, say five years, and then they, there's a slope off. And then eventually they sell a very, very little bit for a very long time. That's the long tail of, 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 of any um, product, really. Um, and so it does seem that to keep it copywriting during the whole long tail uh, as, as aggressively as they do is sort of a mistake. And it, I would say it's a mistake both for the copyright holder and for the culture. I, I do think that, you know, at the point where something's like really um, selling, you know, that's we, we give copyright to people to give them the money to make more things. Like, that's great. And they should, should do that. Um, but, you know, if you have to wait, you know, what, you know, a hundred years past the death of the author to, to make a, um, a transformative work and sell it, um, it's too long. And, and you know, you're, 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 you're beyond when anybody cares. And the reason I think that it should be opened up and where it's good for the original author is somebody else making something. I mean, we, we do this in a commercialized way. Somebody makes a movie of a book and then the book sells. And so the idea of actually opening things up to be reinvented has the side effect in the same look we know this in, we know this in music we have statutory licensing other people can cover records right and somebody making a really great cover of a band will make the original record sell and will make it culturally re relevant and it's just stipulated they have a totally. why don't we have compulsory licensing for anything if somebody makes it and it does well sure kick back right i mean it, it will not only popularize the original song which will will you know people will hear of it the number of kids who only heard of like you know Joan Baez because it was a sample or, you know, the, the way in which. Right. It's such a TikTok thing right now. Mm. And actually speaking of TikTok, so many books, so many like backlist books that were in their yes. long tail that TikTok just decided to, I mean, a lot of publishing, I think doesn't understand TikTok very well, but like, it's <laughs> really they're like. They're starting to after the, uh, what was it? Yeah. Nicholas of last week, which Nicholas is. Nicholas. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> single-handedly so maybe taught publishing something but anyway <laughs> I love I just love this is how you lose the time war and it's and it's so exciting for me to see that come back Ugh. right yeah but, but but I think it's important right what you were saying though that so so a a, if it was what they call compulsory you know statutory licensing or compulsory licensing where you, you know you don't get a choice about who sings your song because we sort of understand that like a song that's not sung is a dead song Right. A book that's not in the cultural ferment is a dead book, and uh, and I think if publishing were to figure that out, it would it would it would be better. Um, and in fact, like I said, if there were to be some kind of copyright system that was set up, that yes, that says by all means give back. But the the number one way to put your book on the bestseller list is have somebody really listen. I, I talk about this with Shakespeare. Shakespeare, sorry, Shakespeare's a good writer, but you know he's four hundred years old, and we don't do Shakespeare because of Shakespeare. We do Shakespeare because he's he because he is free to use attracts the most talented collaborators on the earth. The best people in the world decide all the time that they're going to collaborate with Shakespeare, and because of it, it keeps Shakespeare going. Right? I mean, that's it's 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 the later people. It's Ian McKellen deciding to be clever. It's right. Uh, it's whomever it is. Right? It's 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 the person of the now. It's the artist of the now that means that the old thing is worth doing. So I do think with publishing. So so. All that to say, I support copyright. It should be shorter. Publishers right. should think about the ways in which opening up copyright 
to derivative and transformative works, and I'll say derivative too, can actually prolong the long tail of their book. And also the, the, the it's exactly the books that people want to tell stories about that are the, you know, that are the ones that are important and relevant. And, and you would also give the opportunity for a, like as in fandom, I mean, two people could launch a fandom out of a property that people think is nothing, but somebody all of a sudden writes an amazing story in that fandom and everybody goes, well, what's that? I have to watch this, you know, terrible movie of 30 years ago because this story was so great, right? So it provides the opportunity for a, a contemporary, the way that Biggest Dickless went back and sort of said, okay, I have this thing that I love. Nobody else was talking about it, but I'm going to make something about it. And that's going to create a resurgence. So I, all of that is true. Um, totally. In terms of just, just to go back, I, I, um, I am against, for the legal reasons, um, fan fiction that is using somebody else's intellectual property, I think it, it, both is, it is good that it is non-commercial and it should be non-commercial. I, I think both culturally right. and legally should stay non non-commercial uh in that way and in terms of the the seuss case or um the the um the, the wind gone or 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 uh, 60 years i mean there's a lot of cases that are kind of coming up and i do try to go in there and weigh on the fair use side um only because you know the people with all the lawyers are on the other side so on some level um thank god for some of the pro bono fair use Kind of advocates, the the there are you know legal people who take time to do this work, mostly pro bono, mostly because they think it's the right thing to do. All the big money is on the protection of copyright side, even to the point that I think it's a mistake. I think they're cutting their own. I think they're shooting themselves in the foot. I'll give an example of that in a second. They're shooting themselves in the foot. But in fact, I always try in that same fan work kind of way to join with people who are at least articulating the other side. I don't think that all the places you'll boldly go would have hurt sales. Of all the places, I know, um, and I think people were buying it, yes, because it was Dr. Seuss, but really much more because it was Star Trek. Yeah. Um, and it's Trekkies who were buying it, and so even though and there was no Star Trek in the original book, but I think Trekkies were buying it because it was a Trek thing. Absolutely. But if there's nothing to buy, I mean, now I'm talking the commercial end of this. This is not fair. In fact, that's the thing we want to stop people doing. Like, you cannot, not, not do that on the archive of our own. You cannot post the first chapter of your story and then say, if you want to read the rest of the story, come and pay my patron. You cannot do it. We will bounce you. That is exploitation. We don't do that, A, because it's a fan work, but B, because we feel that is exploiting uh, of, of, of the, the audience in, in that way. Um, but that's not the same if you're actually trying to be a commercial artist. I do think that publishing is finally like, like, like gloaming on to the fact that you that you can like canvas and find authors uh, right. who who like from fan fiction from AO3. Mm -hmm. But it's a good point that a lot of them probably just don't have things immediately to sell. And then it's like, well, well because, mm. because they're doing this I mean, and just to uh, maybe end with this because it's a publishing con uh, podcast, but it because it's fun. Because they weren't ready to like, you know, show up and do a presentation demo. <laughs> they were, right. you know, right. uh, I mean, I'm, in, I'm, you know, I'm old now, right? But I mean, I, it's, it's a number of people I met, like I met fans, you know, when, when I was a graduate student in the middle of the night and you were talking to somebody and she was up exhausted, like breastfeeding her kid. She's right. tired, right? Who's, who's up at three in the morning? Graduate students, <laughs> people <laughs> breastfeeding, people in Australia. I know them all, right? Um, that's fandom, right? Um, yeah, totally. A you know, person with chronic pain. Uh, we're all hanging out talking about, you know, I don't know, Sherlock Holmes at three in the morning. Um, but what I mean is, is people having fun. They weren't necessarily ready. So I mean, if you're talking about, you know, 
and like I said, I'm, I'm actually in favor of this. I'm against commodifying fan works, but I'm fine with agents realizing that, some, that they're amazingly talented writers in fandom. And I'm totally for writers in fandom who want another job, right? Yeah. I think you're thinking I'm going to make money off of my hobby. You're delusional. But if you're looking for a job, it's a good job. If you're trying to meet, you know, to, to pitch yourself to an agent or a publisher, my suggestion is not only have one manuscript, but ideally have three. Um, yeah. And if you have three manuscripts, somebody's going to, somebody will take your meeting. I mean, I just feel like, you know, if you can actually no, produce three manuscripts, somebody's going to take your meeting. And if you can't produce three manuscripts, you're not going to make it as a writer anyway. Yeah. Sorry, that was All right. Crazy. I think. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you know what I mean? Yeah, no. Yeah, we writers, got you. Listen, I'll, I'll say this too. Writers write. It's a verb. I tell my students, writers write like dancers dance. Like there is no being a writer. Like it's a yeah. verb. And if you're not verbing, if you're not doing the thing all the time, then that's. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think that's all the time we have, but we do like to ask at the end of every interview, what you're working on right now, if there's anything that you want to plug or that you think is really cool going on. I, yeah, no, no, I'm not. You've got your, there's a new vetting stuff coming out. You know what? You no, know, my, my book is out, um, yeah. Vitting a History. And I just mentioned that also because it's actually free. Um, it is free to read. You can buy the paperback. Um, and, you know, for University of Michigan Press, I will say by all means go and buy the paperback. But frankly, the better version of the book, and even they would say this, is free to read on the fulcrum. It's an open source book and it has all the videos included and embedded. Because I think if you're actually writing about audiovisual subjects, I see, I, I, I took my own advice. I really wanted to take advantage of the fact that you can publish digitally, which means that I could link to all kinds of clips and I could actually, you know, do close readings of vids in the book, right? Why, why write a print book about a film subject? So I didn't. Um, and it's totally free to read. And if you Google Vitting a History, um, it'll come up on at the University of Michigan on the Fulcrum um, platform. Um, yeah, and I, I'm writing another awesome. essay on the importance of being earnest, but it's really such a great play. So if you've not read The Importance <laughs> of Being Earnest, really go and read it. Okay, good plugs. Okay. All right. Well, yeah, thank you, thank so, you much. so much. You're so welcome. <laughs> All right, guys. Wow, that was amazing. Uh, I know that we kind of pushed the boundary of the every other week schedule we've been working on, but that is because we wanted our season finale to be something fun and interesting and just very cool. And we felt that AO3 and Dr. Copa fit that bill. So that's going to be the final episode of the season. Uh, we're, this summer, we're going to have lots of cool guests on. We're going to record as much as we can. And then we're going to come back for you guys in September with a cool slate with tons of awesome guests. All right. Thank you all so much for listening. Thanks.